RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. Hey, Brian. Hey, Dusty. How's it going? I can't complain. Mike, how are you? Good. How are you, Dusty? I'm good. So, today, we are discussing terror on the Kataro and RPG Lessons Learned. For those of you who haven't listened before, RPG Lessons Learned, we recap our own games so that you can learn from our mistakes. So, set the stage here a bit. Mace 2017. And by the way, I guess our, our feed's been a little confusing for the last couple of episodes, right? Because... We talked about Mace 2016 with the Pathfinder game, the, the, the Saturday morning cartoon D&D. Then we cut straight into our thoughts, our very tired and bleary thoughts, immediately after the marathon that was Mace 2016. And, or sorry, Mace 2017. And then we went back to Mace 2016 for the Assassin's Creed game last year in which I even mentioned the upcoming Mace 2017 because we'd recorded it, you know, weeks in advance. Uh, but here we are. Um, it's it's after Mace 2017, just to be clear. Um, two episodes ago, we did our general recap of the entire convention, and now we're going to go session by session. So we're going to start with the Friday night session. So, Mike, you didn't play Friday night. No, I did not. But Brian, I mentioned in, in two episodes ago that Brian was my ringer at the terror on the Kataro game. The game wasn't full. Brian didn't sign up for it, by the way. We were leaving those slots open in case, you know, there were some last minute signups. But Brian wanted to go and check out the dealer room on the first day. And, and Friday was the first day. And, uh, Brian graciously offered to sit at my table as a, as a ringer to help fill out the table a bit. And, uh, and, and did that. Brian, was that okay? Was it okay to live through the same adventure twice? I mean, it's the same adventure in theory, but it was a good example of how, a good reminder that you can play the same game and it be completely different than a previous play. Yeah, and you did a good job of, of staying engaged but disengaged. Well, I, there was, except for one point, which we can talk about. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, but in general, let, let me recap Tara and Katara. So, so look, major spoiler alert. Somehow I suspect that mostly GMs listen to the show, so it's mostly people who, who might choose to run Terror on the Katara. But if you want your GM to run a game... Um, written by by me, then you should probably stop listening because I'm about to give away the entire plot in three, two, one, and here we go. So the butler did it. The butler did it. <laughs> the butler absolutely <laughs> did it. No, um, terror on the Kataro takes place at sea. It's aboard a steamship in the year 1923. It's a cargo vessel. It's between world wars. So um, basically, what happens is some some gorillas escape from the cargo hold and kill a passenger and wreak some havoc. And the whole rest of the game is trying to track down the so-called monster. Because remember, um, gorillas were still largely a mystery. Um, Diane, what's her name? Diane Fossey? Yeah. Yep. Hadn't done her study about you know gorillas in the mist. That, that, that hadn't happened yet. Um, gorillas were basically like Sasquatch. So they, they were the monsters. And I love the idea of a totally non-magical game. So... And there, there were also some poachers aboard that were smuggling the gorillas on this transatlantic journey. And that's the basic setup. So there's two sets of protagonists. There are these poachers, and there's the gorillas. And it gives me, as GM, lots of chance to throw different things at the players. And then I had this adventure that I, that I wrote, and it's, gosh, printed out. It, it's a lot of pages. I didn't, I didn't do a page count, but 
it, it's it's a fairly lengthy adventure that I wrote from tip to tail specifically to be a con game. Having said all that, this show could easily be me monologuing because I'm the one that ran the game. So we decided we'd, we'd break it up a little bit and then have Mike and Brian sort of ask me some questions about the game. So now that I've set it up, I've done a bit of the intro. Uh, Mike, Brian, you guys want to ask me about the session? So I guess first and foremost, this was not the first time we'd played the game. Was it the second time you ran it or the third? The fourth. The fourth. The fourth. Okay. So, and I'll give you a quick history of that. And I've run it in different systems every time. So I ran it with uh, with Martin, my friend Martin, the, the, well, our friend Martin that we've referred to in the past. I ran him through it in the in the uh, Siege Engine, the Castles and Crusades, the, the Troll Lord Games game, uh, Amazing Adventures, which is like two-fisted pulp era adventures. I ran it for Martin in that system. Then I ran it for you guys in 5e. Then I ran it for some folks at work in BFRPG. And then I ran it at con. So this was my fourth time running this game. So in doing that, which is your favorite uh, system to play, to run this game in? Um, I, I'm, mm, BFRPG. Which is good because that's how you have it written yeah, on, it, on your website. Well, yes, <laughs> and, and and it was hard to land on that. So, the Amazing Adventures, I, I I like the system a lot. I really think I've had issues with the Siege Engine in the past, the the whole Castles and Crusades engine, and, and but I, I've I've fallen back in love with it. Martin runs his his game in Siege. That's why I ran him in Amazing Adventures. Um, that was perfectly fine. Don't get me wrong. Five uh, E, I mean Five E is Five E. 5e is is what we were familiar with, so it made sense for us. But 5e at con, you know, we'll get into that in, in, in later episodes. It just just not right for me. For me to run it, BFRPG is is D20, so it's familiar, but it's rules light, and it and it really encourages rulings. So I can make stuff up on the fly to keep things fun, and not worry about a rules lawyer. So BFRPG, and then I wrote it for BFRPG. To your point, Brian. So I have sample characters and everything that are level three BFRPG characters pre-generated. So BFRPG is my favorite system. And I did again say that it was on your website, but it's actually in GitHub. Yes, it's on GitHub. Yep. Um, you linked to it in the show notes two episodes ago. I'm assuming you'll link to it again. I will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it's, it's a complete adventure. There are no pictures, but it's a complete adventure, um, fairly well organized and laid out. So assuming someone wanted to run this at home versus not a con, would you still recommend BFRPG? I'd recommend whatever you're familiar with. So I'd say, hey, GMs, read the adventure. Um, read a, what, what, what most of the text is not mechanical. Most of the text is like background information on the year, just, just a little bit. Background information on the ship, which was an actual vessel, including a link to the Wikipedia article. And then a fairly, you know, detailed timeline of what what occurred before the adventure started and then what will occur on the ship if the players don't intervene and i really like that because in each of the four games that i've played the players choose to intervene at different times you guys when i ran you immediately as soon as the as soon as the passenger was killed boom you guys are all over it like cops taking over the investigation taking over for the captain like you guys were all in it when i ran it at work they hung back and hung back and hung back. And I thought that might happen. So that, that's why I laid out this whole timeline of, look, if you don't interfere, 
here's how the poachers interact with the crew. Here's what the poachers do. Here's what the gorillas are doing. Here's what the crew's doing. Here's what everyone's trying to do over the next couple of hours. Um, and, and, and so, so if, if they choose to hang back, I can keep describing until eventually they find a spot to engage. So at con, Brian, help me out. Help me remember at con, a couple of them engaged with, you know, after the murder, after the killing, um, they engaged in kind of talking to the witness, investigating the body. You guys were gung ho all up in that. But then three of the five people at the table hung back. Yeah, I hung back. Yeah, well, you did. You were trying to let everyone else take lead, but, the, but then two of my actual player players hung back. Yeah. So I honestly think, and I don't remember the game running exactly um, that Mike and I played. It was just the two of us being completely gung ho because I know that at the very least we we slept the night and let and at least got into the day because we got to the. Uh, That's right. You did do that. Yeah. Uh, but but no, I meant I meant at the start. Yeah, at the start where. The game that we played in uh, at Mace, I mean, it it resolved itself that night. Yeah, and uh, so, so the, the night the murder occurs, we played through. I mean, like it was nonstop until yeah, like four hours later in, in real time. Four hours later, the mystery would have been resolved. Resolved, yeah. So I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting a little bit of hanging back. I and mean, I actually tried to force that at one point because my character, who was a spy, very sickly as well. So, so kind of suave, uh, sophisticated, but also, uh, I think I had seven hit points. It was very, yeah, you, you had a con penalty. Yeah. So, um, constitution, not convention. Yeah. <laughs> had a con penalty, <laughs> penalty as well. Um, I definitely tried to play my character safe, uh, up until the end. And I just didn't care because again, it's a con game, which we've talked about in the past, you know, why, why play safe? Um, but yeah, the characters for the most part, uh, the three or so that tried to drive it really drove it. The ones that held back, I don't really, I, I can't really put myself in, in their heads as to why they held back. Cause I don't know. Cause I, oftentimes you, you want to hold back if you feel that something's going to reveal itself. And the way the game was going, I didn't feel that that was the case. I felt that it was all being handled through the narrative and we weren't expecting like any Deus Ex Machina to pop up and say, oh, well, this is, you know, this is, this is what's going on. So I, I can't really, like, other than me, other than myself, because I was trying to not reveal what was happening, I can't explain why the others were holding back. Well, I think I, I, think I have a bit of an explanation. So um, the character sheet. So BFRPG has got very low numbers in the math. Like the hit, you don't have a lot of hit points. Your AC is not through the roof. So... I have one of the character sheets, one of the pre-generated character sheets here in front of me for for the mad scientist, for the, basically the, the wizard character. And uh, this guy's got 12, uh, an armor class of 12, and he has 11 hit points. So I think what was at my table were, were people that were used to 5e, and, and then certainly uh, two of the players we've engaged, well, one of the, one of the players we, we've engaged with after the fact on social media, and he seems really into Savage Worlds. So... I think an AC of, of 12 and, and 11 hit points. Totally different than Savage Worlds. Yeah, yeah. totally different. <laughs> but but num- I think if, if someone who's used to 5e or even 3e or 4e looked at those numbers, they'd be like, oh, no. Like, I, I really can't take a lot. I can't do a lot. BFRPG has that feel. Your characters are, are fragile. So I think they were reacting to those numbers because after the first combat, they were they were in it to win it. Yeah. They engaged after that. Once they saw how the math and BFRPG worked 
and that, hey, everyone's got low math, including, you know, appropriately leveled monsters, then they were, then they were gung ho. So, so how do you, how do you approach that as a game master from, from someone who's in a new system who's seeing these low numbers? How do you relate to them? Do you, is it, is it narrative in that you're a real human in a real world scenario or is it that, this math is just artificially low. Feel free to be engaging and, and outgoing like you would in a, in a fantasy system. Yeah, that's a great question. I didn't really think about that. So that, that, that you're uncovering a fairly a good insight here, Mike. When I set the tone for the game, I kept saying, hey, remember, remember it's 1923. Remember that we don't know this yet. Remember that we don't know that yet. And I was, I put so much work into the adventure in the background that to me it was very grounded in reality. And I wanted to show my players that and not tell them. Like, I really wanted this to be, I wanted wanted to have a ton of verisimilitude and a ton of realism. So, I I think them being a little cautious about their first shootout or whatever on the ship was fine. And, And it fit the tone. And I think them getting a little more confident after their first fight is, is, is fine. Now, as far as BFRPG being a new system, I did walk them through a few mechanics, and I, I didn't even think about this pre-show, Brian, when we came up with the show notes. Here's a mistake I made, and you pointed it out as we drove home, if you'll recall. I talked through, for like the first 10 minutes, here are your character sheets, here's this, here's that, and I gave some background on BFRPG, the system, Yeah. and I went over initiative and how initiative in BFRPG is different. And then as soon as we engaged, I threw that out the window. So in BFRPG, I really like that you roll initiative every round. And your dexterity modifies your initiative roll every round. I like it because it gives the rogue chance after chance after chance to be first in line or to be last in line or whatever, and it really works. It's fun. I think to roll initiative once and then just keep going in that order, that as a rogue, so if I if I blow that roll, my dexterity only came into play at the start of combat, and then after that, we're all just taking turns. That seems lame. Rolling over and over and over again as the battle changes, as conditions change, and letting the dice have their say, modified statistically by by dexterity, or having the probability modified, it feels it feels more fun. But then I didn't do that at all. I, I I was at con, so I noticed some of the players hanging back, and I really what I want to emphasize in this podcast, and we haven't touched on it yet. What I, here's what I really want to emphasize for you listening at home. I had had these two experiences at con last year, and I wrote this game to be a con game. Like, everything about it is meant to be engaging and keep everyone interested. And it takes place on a ship at sea because I wanted it to have a limited geography. I didn't want people to feel free to just leave town and go to the next town. I wanted to limit the scope of where you are I wanted to have lots of antagonists who are doing lots of things that have lots of motivation to interact with. And I wanted it to really be this Rorschach test at, at sea. It's limited scope. You can, you can kind of imbue it with whatever, you, with whatever you want. You can see whatever you want in it. It's a fun house of ingredients and stuff to play with. And I wanted it to produce this kind of, I think every session of this adventure would be completely different. I really think that, but it's a con game, and the character sheets are so simple and short. Like, I have the wizard character sheet in front of me, and it still it fits on half a page, printed. And the only description of of the guy's character is quote smart but unpopular. Patrick can think on his feet. That's it. That's it. 
Everything else is up to the player. So it's a con game meant for you to imbue it with a lot of stuff. And gosh, I'm talking a lot. Sorry, guys. So I happen to be looking at a character sheet from a game that we'll be talking about next episode. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little more involved. It than is this a little one. more involved than that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a spoiler for next episode. Yeah, I, I really <laughs> wanted to keep. Uh, yeah, I, I'm talking a lot. It's written to be a con game. It's written to be a player can sit down, read a read less than half a sheet of text, get the mechanics of what they can do. And that that first phrase, smart but unpopular, that's direct reflection of his high intelligence but yeah. low charisma. Yeah, yeah. Every single character had 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 a had something like that, you know, wise but clumsy. Yeah, something but something. Um, every character had a had a had a three sentence, you know, this but this, that reflected their highest stat and their lowest stat to make the stats relevant. I love that. So, uh, for this game, you so back when we first started playing, you really got experimental with props. I remember one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite props we ever did was like a Nerf gun, and you had to aim between a circle. Uh, <laughs> yes, on the paper plate. Yes. On the paper plate. Yeah. Uh, to, to for like uh, projectile weapons, but for this, uh, you actually made the Kataro. The first time we played this, Kataro was on a piece of grid gridded paper. Yes, and I made the Kataro. But uh, this one, you made it, and it was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, um, it was just a, several sheets of foam core. It was about thirty three inches long. I made it to scale to the real Kataro scale. And I had printed, well, in, in Visio, the program Visio, I designed the guitar, I designed all the decks. And then there were these sheets of foam core that you would stack up. The bottom sheet is the engine room, and then you put the below decks on that that has the cargo holds and the crew quarters and all that. And then you put the above decks on that that has the cargo bay doors and, and all the above deck stuff. And then on top of that, there's the officer's deck and then the bridge. Having having played this on a paper and also with the Kataro in front of me, this brought the game to life way more than the oh, first yeah. time we played it. It was amazing. A 3D Kataro right there in front of you. And it wasn't to, it was to scale in the sense that the height and the length and the width matched the real Kataro. But I couldn't find any real blueprints, so I made up the internal layout. Whatever. But it was 3D. Because the foam core stacked on each other, I could, I could take layers off so you could see the below decks, put layers back on. You could see where things, it was 3D. So you could get a feel for line of sight and where you are. Now, it wasn't to scale in terms of one inch was not five feet. Yeah. It was not to mini scale. But we could we didn't use minis. We just pointed at areas in the boat to say, okay, you're here right now. And we just kept track of it that way. But having that model to point to, yeah, it added a lot of, of, of realism. So no, knowing how well that worked, how would you approach a different game in the future uh, when it comes to um, having a scale model like that? Because it, it it did work so great. Would you um would you try to contrive a game that would fit some sort of three D model, or would you say forget it and we'll just use graph paper? Well, I definitely learned that my idea around limiting the the geography by having the game take place on a single ship really worked. So wherever my next games t- took place, um, I think I would, well, and you know, I say that, I, I can think of ways around that. It's not that you have to limit your, geog- your geography to be successful, it's that you have to think about it to be successful. Think about your setting and think about all the ways that could go awry at con. And so Mike's, I'm frustrating Mike, he's trying to whiteboard the lesson learned there. Mike, I, I, I think for this game, I think limiting the geography is fine. People who hear the entire episode can hear the context of that, that. That it doesn't always mean limit. But for me, 
having the mystery take place aboard a ship with a limited number of places to go and explore was perfect for Khan because you only have four hours. Um, how would I do it differently, Brian? I would find a way to limit the geography. You know, here's where the, the adventure takes place in this space, and I have this space modeled. I think a poster board with a really well-drawn map would be fine as long as you have things that you can point to that are tactically relevant. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I would just somehow think about the geography and make it relevant. I can think of ways to run Theater of the Mind, but here's something that they don't tell you about Khan. It's freaking loud. Like, I was hoarse after Khan, after running two games, because I was having to yell. Over everybody else. Over everyone, over every other table in that room. Brian, was my, was my yelling over the top or no, was it or was it, it warranted it was warranted it was so loud i didn't remember it being so loud last year uh but of course um the day you ran a game it was sunday morning and it was dead yeah it was dead uh, so last la- yeah last year um it was just loud and i just we were also in a different part of the room last year the yeah, we, were, game. we were near the door we were near the door where we were deep within the room and there were probably what eight or ten other tables going right around us yeah, yeah. And, and God, it was so loud. So I could see Theater of the Mind working with strangers, but at con, when it's so loud, yeah, I'd, I would personally have a really hard time with Theater of the Mind in that environment, having to listen and yell and, I'm sorry, what did you say? There's a lot more of that than you think. So the 3D model really helped with that. And then the other prop, Brian, the wallet. I was worried that we weren't going to get to it. Oh, you were going to get to it somehow or another. (laughs) There was no way I wasn't deploying that wallet. So I have an old wallet that has no... Like, you know how wallets these days have that that clear vinyl for your license or have the clear vinyl for pictures? I had a wallet that just happened to not have that. It's just leather pockets and cloth. So I thought, oh, what a great old-timey wallet. And it was an old wallet. So I just used it, and, and I made a fake old-timey photo like a family photo and i had a a, a telegram in there and i had all these props in there and you can read about that by the way on the github adventure that brian will link to in the show notes because because uh, it's a lot to describe but i went to a lot of work making these props like i actually varnished the old-timey photo with 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 a polyacrylic to have to give it that that look and feel i used scallop shears to give it that old-timey photo edge like i did a lot of work on these props i did a lot of work to the telegram prop i did a lot of work to the to the to the driving license i printed up old south african currency from back when it was a protectorate of the british government the south african pounds i printed that on parchment paper and then, and then i weathered it um so yeah that that wallet which which by the way is from one of the poachers we, somehow or another it was gonna come up and when we hit we, i think we took a break and it was like okay we're gonna hit the halfway point as soon as one of these poachers goes down, that poacher is going to be Gunter, and I'm going to give up the wallet prop. And I love that the uh, the youngest player at the table. I don't want to get into like names and stuff, um, but I love that the youngest player at the table is the one that happened to kill, and he legitimately killed Gunter, not just a not just an unnamed poacher because they they took those out with, with blows to the head. But they when he, he killed Gunter because he's the one that killed Gunter and walked up to the body. I was like, boom, you find this wallet, and I chuck it out of the table. And there was a pretty good reaction at the table. Yes, there was. Like, one guy was like, whoa! Because you know, I'd had the wallet sitting on the table, and I guess they assumed it was my wallet. Because when I threw it out there, one, one of the guys said something like, I was wondering, like, why you had your wallet just sitting there. But uh, 
yeah, the kid got to go through it. I say kid, that sounds pejorative. The young man got to go through it and, you know, read all the stuff and pass it around. And, oh, the prop of the Kataro went over well and the prop of the wallet went over well. So I would say at con game, another lesson learned from me that I will always have from now on, always, are props and handouts. So how do you, so when it comes to handouts, you also gave out copies of the BFRPG uh, guide. Yeah, the freebies. And so in the, the dice, do you feel that was necessary? Necessary, no, but a nice touch, yeah. I mean, it was it was cheap. It didn't cost me very much. So BFRPG sells for five bucks a copy because Chris Gonerman, the guy who does it, doesn't do it for profit. He he sells the books basically at cost. So you, when you buy the books from Amazon, um, basic fantasy role playing game. You're basically buying it at cost. So five bucks a book, six books, 30 bucks, no big deal. And the dice, no big deal. And for me, it's all about being an ambassador of gaming. And those dice, I got them from the EAI educational website. What I love about them is that when you buy the set of 127 dice or whatever it is, every die is a different color. So the D20 is always red. The, uh, the, the D4 is always black with white writing. But every every die is a different color. The, the D12 is blue. The D6 is yellow. So what I love is that if you have a novice at your table, it's really easy to say, well, I mean, there's the, there's the gaming trope, right? Which which die is that again? Hey, Mike, roll me a constitution saving throw. Uh, which dice is that? It's a D20. Uh, which one's a D20? The red one. The red one. And I, I love the ability to say that. And, and that came up, actually, at the table. At one point, someone was kind of, fumbling for the D20, and I was like, oh, it's the red one. So it, it, it had its use at the table. I think it's a nice touch, Brian. I think the freebies, I think when you go to con, you know, these, these people paid money to be in my game. It was a minimal, minimal investment for me, and I get to be an ambassador of BFRPG and hopefully get some folks to take the core rulebook home and some dice and maybe run a game of BFRPG for their friends. So I was going to suggest, hey, why not just print out the core rulebook because it's free, but I'm trying to open it up in Chrome now, and it's been going for like 30 seconds. Oh, it's a, it's a big book. Yeah, it's a big book. So it's it's five bucks, but it's not a small book. It's it's several hundred pages, and it's it's a full size, what nine by twelve or yeah. eight and a half by eleven, whatever, whatever it is. Book. Yeah. It it's to me, it's I bet it's cheaper to get it. It's to, it, to buy it. Uh, at least when you have to factor in your time. Yep. Yeah, certainly. But yeah, Susan made fun of me actually for the freebies. So we had these feedback cards that we gave out yep. at the end of the game to get feedback from the players on the con game. And Susan was like, you're bribing them with this stuff, referring to the book and the dice. And I really, I wasn't thinking of it that way. I just thought, you know, what a neat way to be a gaming ambassador. It's not like you were being graded. In, like, you wanted to make, you wanted feedback to... For my own personal for use. For your own personal use. Yeah, I, I, I didn't want to skew it. I'm not interested in skewing that feedback. And from a player's perspective, you know, thinking thinking about how that game went compared to some of the games that I played, I went if 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 one of the GMs had gone through that length to to make that difference to make that game stand out, that could have changed my perspective hugely on how the game was ran, how professional the DM was. Um, now, I think I think that's a really good way to to engage your players at the beginning to say, "Hey, I'm invested in your time." Thank you for your time. I think that's a that's a great way to do it. So compared to how we've run BFRPG in the past, how do you think this this game went in comparison? To oh, much better. Um, we've talked about BFRPG in, in previous episodes of the show, and, and pretty unfairly, I think, because, uh, frankly, 
when I ran it for you guys, I didn't understand the system as well as I do now. I was used to a very new school way of thinking, and BFRPG, you have to look at it through an old school lens. Like the main thing I think of is is how Chris just had no fun with it at all in, in our personal games because I didn't understand that rogues attain levels faster with less experience points needed. And because of that, when I made you all level seven, he was significantly underpowered yeah. compared to you guys. So little things like that, like really understanding the math of the system and digging into the math, little things like that, um, I get those right now. And it makes BFRPG much better. So um, frankly, Brian, I, I would run BFRPG again. I've introduced two different groups at work to gaming through BFRPG. And I've introduced, or I've, yeah, I think introduced. I don't think anyone at our table for Terra and Katara had played BFRPG. They'd heard of it, but not played it. So uh, I've introduced at this point three different groups of people to BFRPG now that I understand it better, and it goes a lot better. So, yeah, I I, I, I will continue to run Terra the Katara at different cons and, and, and gaming stores and whatnot, and I will keep running it in BFRPG. So you mentioned earlier that you got some uh, some feedback from your players. Um, was there, well, first of all, what was that feedback? And I guess more importantly, is there any specific feedback from your players that you might use to do anything differently next year? Sure. So I, I've got actually the four feedback cards because I had five players, including Brian, and Brian didn't do a card, obvious reasons. But um, I've got the four feedback cards right here in front of me. And it was basically a, hey, rate the game one through five, and then give me a start, stop, and, and continue. So, you know, what should I start doing? What should I stop doing? And what should I continue doing? And, and going through the cards, I got one, four, and three fives. And then as far as the, uh, the, the, the start doing, I had one player say that they wanted more of a variety in settings. But because I had specifically strategized against that, yeah. I'm not sure what to do with that feedback. Like, I'll think about it for my next game. Like maybe have two locations or three locations instead of just the boat, but uh, but I think I'll continue to run Terra on the Kataro just on the boat. Yeah. When I write another con game, I'll think about a variety of settings. Um, I had a separate person talk about the need for a variety of enemies. Oh no, I'm sorry, it's the same person. Variety of enemies slash settings. So the variety of enemies, I had the 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 poachers and the gorillas that were fought. Um. In a four-hour game, I don't know. Like, It's a lot of work on the GM just to keep the plot going and just to keep track of what the players are doing. And I want to free myself up as much as I can to think about what the players are introducing to the mix and keep my fingers on those threads so that I can keep the game reacting to them and make them really feel in control of this experience. And the more variables I have to keep track of on my side of the table like a variety of enemies. I, I, I don't know. So I, 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 when I think about, you know, thoughtfully taking feedback, I'll probably ignore this feedback for Terra and the Katara. Do you think it's a possibility that that's feedback coming from someone who's expecting more of a, a combat encounter-based game? Because as I remember this game, there were only like two actual combat encounters and the rest was RP, problem-solving, and puzzles, right? Yeah, well, not puzzle solving so much as just plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plot that you've got to work through, investigation that you've got to work through, a lot of clues, a lot of thinking, and, but but all always leading to that conclusion, always leading to, you know, 
taking down the gorillas somehow or some way. By the way, the game is written, for those of you at home who, who are animal lovers, the game is written encourages capture um, because you get more XP for capturing the gorillas. And I had one group do that out of the four times I've ran it, but for the most part, um, people jump into the whole 1923 idea of gorillas as monsters, and, and, and they do shoot the gorillas, which is, I mean, that it's, it's, it's a con game. You, you, you get that, and that's fine. Um, we had fun with it. We which, actually, we actually, uh, which debated, sounds sadistic, but yeah, we debated that at the table. Yeah, I noticed that, and I, and in the debate, I knew because we'd played it before that you get more XP for capture, which is XP is irrelevant at a con game anyway. Yeah, but uh, meaning that the author's intent is really the preference would be for you to uh, capture. Yeah, but uh, I kept my mouth but shut. But you kept your mouth shut. Because I really want the players to lead it. And we debated it, and we said, given our modern sensibilities, we would prefer to capture. But in 1923, we're it only makes sense that you would kill. Yeah, and you had the tranquilizer gun. Yeah. And they, they did ask. They absolutely asked about, whether well, are there drugs on the ship that we can use? And I gave them morphine, but because of the time and era, with no medical study and gorilla, we, we kept this game so realistic. Like, I kept the game so grounded in history um, that I made it to where, yeah, you can capture the gorillas probably, but it ain't going to be easy. Um, it's not going to be, oh, you find a Trent gun, because that's so obvious. I didn't want to make it, I didn't want to, I didn't want to make any choices obvious in this game. And so at that point, by this point, I'd given up the thought of playing my character safe. And I just tried to make him a, a guy who I honestly abandoned uh, the character the, uh, entirely. And he basically was just became a um, uh, I came guns blazing trying to take out the uh, the gorillas in the hopes that I would take them down before they took me down, which turned out not to be the case. <laughs> yeah, he uh, very frail. Yeah, he, you, you did get taken down. Yeah. So how difficult? That's a good question for you, Brian. Was this game difficult at all? Like, was it challenging enough to be engaging? Well, let me ask this first. Looking around, I, I was trying to really keep an eye on the table. Was the table engaged? For the most part, yes. Other than our friend from last year, I think that she, I think she was a little bored, maybe. Mm. Uh, and her feedback um, implied that she would have liked more variety. We don't know that was her, actually. Well. We assumed. We assumed. We suspected, but we don't know that. We don't know for sure. Because we walked away from the table and everyone gave their feedback. But yeah, you're right. Um, to your point about her engagement, when we saw that feedback, we were like, oh, but that was her because she did seem kind of bored at parts. Yeah. But um, I think everyone else seemed to really be engaged. I, you know, I, I really liked having, a, I don't think calling him a kid's a pejorative, but the young man at the table, I think I enjoyed having him there and he really seemed to be into it. And yeah. Uh, Again, he sort of he 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 brought a a childlike sensibility to the game, but I still think that he enjoyed it. And his, yeah, the, the variety of people at the table, and his, and his father loved it. Yeah, yeah. So we had a father and son at the table, and and they were great. They both had a really great dynamic. I mean, the son had clearly gamed a lot before, but the dad clearly knew more about old school games. So yeah. they, they they would consult on stuff. I, I could see him over there consulting on what they should do, and that was great. That was awesome. So to to have a father and son experience at the table, that was awesome. We had a gentleman who clearly had a lot of history in gaming at our table, and he he was one of the ones that was slower to engage to begin with. Yeah, but then by the end of it, man, he was all up into it and and correcting me on 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 where different people were at any moment. Yeah, 
Like, like he was great. We, we had a great table. We really had a great table. I had a realization playing this game, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but we talked before about our, our friend Mark, and we love Mark, how when he was playing his dwarf, how he would just sort of sit back and let the rest of us go because he felt that he was more experienced than we were. Yes, and how much that annoyed us. At the time, and I realized playing this, like, damn, I'm doing the exact same thing that Mark did. <laughs> well, you were at first. Yeah, so I... And, and then you engaged. Then I engaged, so... But I had that realization at the table, like, crap, I'm Mark right now. I, yeah. It came across the same way it did when Mark did it. <laughs> yeah, it, did. it really did. I, it didn't I, come across well. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I made a point at that, you know, to engage. So, I mean... Mike, I don't, I don't even know what, what all lessons you wrote down here. Let, let's do the recap and then the episode. We're probably, what, what, what are we at, Brian? Uh, about 37 minutes. We're good. Okay. That's not bad. So so I think I got three three uh, three lessons learned to take away from here. So uh, the first is uh, a fear of risk from low numbers is okay as long as you're showing the player's realism through narrative. So so making sure that they're in a realistic setting um, and then, and then letting them do a little bit of exploration will kind of offset that risk as long as they're exploring it through the narrative. Um, I also got, think about how your setting, uh, keeps the game, uh, in, in the right atmosphere for the con. So, so it's okay to limit geography as long as you're making the geography relevant. Um, so that's the second lesson we got. And then, uh, the third lesson I got out of this was, uh, always have props and handhelds for con games. Yeah. Yep. So, I'm trying to think of what else to add to that. I, I really can't emphasize enough how much I wrote this game to be a one-shot con game. So, if you're GM out there and you're listening and you're, and you're looking for a game to run at con, I think the 1920s pulp feel was a great change from from a lot of the rest of con because a lot of the a lot of the con games were you know there was an awful lot of D and D organized play and Pathfinder organized play. So, just because of those two factors. I mean, it's probably, I didn't do the math, but probably like over half, 60-70% fantasy gaming. Then there was quite a lot of variety in Savage Worlds. There was a lot of different stuff in Savage Worlds, and there were quite a few Cthulhu games. So there was some 1920s stuff, but a D20 1920s game, I, I had a lot of fun running that, and I thought of it at the time as a good bit of variety for cons. So if you're looking for that game, check the show notes. And by the way, when we say show notes... They don't always come through on whatever podcasting app that you use. The hyperlinks don't always come through. The text sometimes doesn't come through, depending on which app you're using to, to, to download podcasts. You can always find the show notes at rpglessonslearned.com. So go there, and, and you will find all the hyperlinks to you know all the different things we refer to whenever an episode refers back to the show notes. Uh, and also, hey, while I'm talking about it, follow us on social media. RPG LL podcast on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So RPG LL podcast, look us up, follow us. We, we, we try to keep active. I think we're most active on Twitter, but we try to keep active on other platforms, including Google plus. Yeah, it's, it's a con game. So if you're a GM, you're looking for a con game, check it out, check it out, check out the link in the show notes, read through it, see if you like it. A lot of background, a lot of thoughts. I, I would love for someone to run it. And give me feedback at rpglpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back next episode on, on possibly a, a more negative episode, actually definitely a more negative episode, about our Saturday morning game. So just a warning in advance that the, the tone of our next episode, which we're actually about to, re- to record now, is going to be uh, different. 
So we're going to try our best to keep everything constructive. But just advance warning. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned. And we're sharing ours with you. <laughs>